0: Luke 7 begins with a story of Jesus healing a centurion servant. This is a story about authority. The centurion only needs Jesus to speak the word, and he believes it will be done. This contrasts with the Jewish people who question everything, who doubt Jesus' authority, who continually ask, by what authority do you do these things? Who told you you could do that? And it reminds us that very often our inclination as human beings is to question and to doubt, to want to know more about the why and the how instead of just doing what we believe God wants us to do or what Scripture tells us we should do. In chapter 7, we also have an episode where Jesus raises a widow's son at a city called Nain. This story is unique to the Gospel of Luke. None of the other Gospel authors catch it. And Jesus literally stops a funeral procession and resurrects a dead boy. Um, he knows that this widow is dependent on the son to have, um, to take care of her and to provide for her. Jesus not only has authority over sickness, but he also has it over demons and death and all diseases. You can compare this story to Elijah and Elisha, prophets in the Old Testament who also conducted resurrections. You can find Elijah's in 1 Kings 17 and Elisha's in 2 Kings chapter 4. Then John the Baptist comes. Um, once again, as we look at authority and what Jesus has power over, John the Baptist now has questions about Jesus. John is asking for confirmation of Jesus' mission. He's not seeing enough political activity, and he's not hearing enough judgment in Jesus' preaching. And so it's making him doubt whether or not Jesus is who he thought he was. John had an idea of who the Messiah was and how the Messiah should act. The religious authorities have an idea of who the Messiah is going to be and how the Messiah is going to act, and they were both wrong. It reminds me that sometimes we have drawn a picture of Jesus that may or may not be consistent with what scripture reveals to us is who Jesus was. We have a sinful woman who comes and anoints Jesus' um, feet with a jar of alabaster ointment. There, and others stand around and go, hmm, if he was such a prophet, he would know. Well, Jesus does know, but there's no reason to embarrass her, no reason to call her out. Um, She's coming and doing a beautiful thing, and Jesus protects her dignity and her acceptance in ways that we tend to want to rank people and look down and exclude people, and um, Jesus does not. When we talk about the cost of the, the ointment, starting in verse 41, a certain creditor, had. We, t- we tell a story to reinforce this idea of what is precious and um, what is going to be used. 500 denarii would be 18 months' salary. 50 denarii would be two months' salary. So he makes a a strong contrast um, in the debts and the fact that for some of us, when we have had Jesus pull us through great difficulty, we tend to more be grateful than people who've always had an easy life. And people who have really, really rebelled and found forgiveness and freedom, acceptance and love um, of God in Jesus Christ, they tend to be much more grateful than those of us who have just been blessed our, our whole entire lives. And that was the case for this woman there. Um, in chapter 8, we see that there are women who are accompanying Jesus among those who traveled with him on a regular basis. Among that larger group of disciples beyond the 12, there were women. And there who traveled with him. They probably took care of some, um, logistics, um, meals, where we're going to stay, getting everybody together. But we also truly believe they were among the disciples in the story of Mary and Martha. When Martha wants Mary to get up and help her, Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. That's a euphemism for she is engaged in, she is learning. She is a student sitting at the feet of the teacher and learning. Jesus tells the parable of the sower, which we get explained to us, but in between the story and the explanation, we're told why Jesus chooses to talk in parables. It's because of the lack of proper response by the people. So he quits saying things straight out so that he ends up in a debate about every one of them, and he tells a story that teaches the point point reinforces the principle, and those who want to hear it will hear it and understand it, and those who just want to be contrary will just hear a story and can let it go. I enjoy the story of the lamp under a jar. Um, Jesus is transformational. We are changed when we encounter Jesus and people will see it like a city set on a hill. We are different and places should be different because there are Christians there. Um, and nothing that is hidden is not going to be drug out into the light. In other words, we aren't just going to look like Christians. <laughs> We need to be Christians through and through. Jesus transforms us from the inside out, Um, not just a whitewash on the outside, but truly who we are to the core of our being becomes transformed. Jesus tells us that um, we get new brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God, that people who are close to prophets and to Jesus, that nobody is able to, forgive my saying it this way, nobody's able to suck up. To Jesus. You don't get extra bonuses and favors because you were related to him. Um, we know that two of the disciples are going to ask to sit at his right and left hands. In one version of the story, their mother asks on their behalf. Um, there aren't favors. God calls us to different things for God's own reasons that sometimes we see and sometimes we don't. But we are all equally loved, equally part of this family, just called to be different parts of of the body of Christ. Jesus calms a storm, a physical storm, which reminds us that not only does he help us go through the difficult times of life, but he also calms the storms inside of us. We have a story of the healing of the Gerasene demoniac. Some of your translations may say Gadarene, um, as we have found different manuscripts of the scriptures. Some of them say Gerizim, some say Gadarene. Um, we believe Gerizim is probably the correct because Gerizim um, sets um, close to the shore along the Sea of Galilee, that Lake Gennesaret. There was part of the shore that is a Gentile side. There's a part that's most definitely a Jewish side. And Capernaum, Jesus' home base for his ministry on earth in Galilee, sits almost on the edge of those two. So he was close to both Gentiles and Jews. He conducts many, many miracles. And um, Luke likes to use the word immediately. There's always this translation. Jesus is always on the move, going to see someone. Here, Jesus is going to um, heal Jairus, um, a leader in the synagogue's daughter. Um, And this is what we call the miracle on the way to a miracle. He comes and asks Jesus to come and heal his daughter. And on the way, a woman who has been hemorrhaging blood for 12 years reaches out and touches him. Now, the fact that she has been bleeding for 12 years would make her unclean, meaning anything she touches is unclean. People are unclean. You couldn't go to synagogue or temple, um, so people would not have touched her. This would have been um, something very separating. It would have been almost as debilitating as leprosy as far as social connection, relationship, and love with people. And she reaches out and touches the fringe of his garment. The Jewish man wore prayer shawls um, that had fringe along the bottom. This goes all the way back to what they were told to wear to put fringe on tassels on the end of their garments in the Old Testament to remind them of God and what God had brought them through. And there was an oral tradition that said that the anointing of God would sit so heavily on the Messiah that even the fringe of his prayer shawl would have healing properties. So when this woman comes up behind him and dares to touch him and touch the fringe of that shawl, she's not only saying, I believe you can heal me, but I I believe you're the long-awaited Messiah who's going to heal me. And she does receive her healing. Meanwhile, Jairus' daughter has passed away and the crowd comes to tell him Jesus is not deterred at all. He's already resurrected the widow's son at Nain. He can resurrect this daughter, which he does. Now we change gears a little bit and Jesus sends his 12 disciples out on a mission at the beginning of chapter 9. He tells them to go um, to take authority and to conduct ministry the way he has been doing it. They're to travel light. Don't take a lot with you. This is not a vacation. This is a working relationship. You're not moving. Just travel light and trust that what you need will, will be there. Learn to depend on God, but stay in one place. Philosophers at the time would travel to towns to teach, to engage in um that kind of question and answer um, learning situation, and teach. And they would bounce from house to house. Jesus says, don't do that. Pick a place and just stay there. Find a base of ministry and and be in that place until you leave that city. Jesus feeds 5,000 people. There, that's a lot of, that's men, 5,000 men. There would have been women and children besides. He has them sit down and he takes what they have and he makes it more than enough. In the Old Testament, the his, Israelite people received manna in the wilderness. And all that time while they had manna, it was just enough You only got what you needed for that day. Whatever you picked beyond that spoiled except for Sabbath. And on the the day before Sabbath, you could pick enough for two days and it would last. But now with Jesus, we don't just have enough. We have more than enough. There are leftovers. In fact, 12 baskets of leftovers. There are, in fact, two feeding stories like this in the Gospels. One is the feeding of 5,000, which happens on a Jewish side in a Jewish area. And there are 12 baskets. There were 12 tribes of Israel. So there's enough a grace, enough provision, enough presence of God, for everyone, for all 12 tribes. The other feeding story, he feeds 4,000 people. It happens on a Gentile side, and there are seven baskets left. Seven is the biblical number for completion and perfection, seven days to the week. Um, And so Jesus is not only the Jewish Messiah for all 12 tribes of Israel, but he's the Messiah of the entire world for the whole world, for all seven. Jesus now begins to talk about who he, what his mission is actually going to entail. We get Cedar, Peter's wonderful confession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, which he delivers at Caesarea Philippi. But we know that even as Peter says it, he doesn't fully understand because the very next part of the narrative tells us that he, he resists what Jesus says is going to happen. Um, when Jesus says the Son of Man is going to undergo suffering, be rejected, and be killed, Peter's like, no, no, no. <laughs> so even when we want to follow Jesus, we just still don't always understand exactly what that means, exactly what that looks like. It's hard to comprehend all of who God is and who God calls us to be. It becomes a journey of faith and trust to do so. We have the story of the Transfiguration where Peter, James, and John um, see Jesus in more of his heavenly glory than he has seen when he is normally fully in his physical body. He is joined by Moses and Elijah. Moses represents the prophets. Elijah, re- or Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the pro- prophets. Um, there are those who also say that Moses represents the old. Elijah represents the end, so the beginning and the end, and Jesus is the one who comes in between God's revelations. Jesus heals a boy with a demon. Um, Matthew kind of calls this epilepsy. The word used is literally moon struck in there. He seems to have a seizure disorder there. And it may have been that a demon was making it worse. We also know that there was a lack of understanding of many medical conditions that we now have today. There, I find that most of the time when I, Jesus kind of corrects us of our wrong thinking a lot of times. Um, I know there was one story where they come across a man who is lame and the disciples say, so who sinned this man or his parents that he would be born this way? And Jesus, in my mind, kind of (laughs) goes, That the word of God, that the son of God might be seen, that God's power might be shown. Um, he kind of blows up in like, it's. this is not about who sin the, the, got him this way. It's about who's going to help him move on from here. Jesus continues to tell his death. Um, he's trying to work really hard to help people know. Um, he doesn't want anyone to be misled by his popularity. Um, this is not about popularity. It's not about gathering the biggest crowds. It's about making disciples. It's about living as God intended us to live. We do have a story of Jesus visiting a Samaritan village where they refused to receive him. Um they don't want anything to do with him. You, you're Jewish. You're the Jewish savior. You keep that over there. Um, it makes he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's how he ends up going through Samaria. That's a Hebrew idiom for a settled decision, meaning it's done. I've decided this is what I'm going to do. But when the village rejects him, um, some of the disciples, James and John, sons of thunder. Um It's like Lord, you want us to command fire to come down let's just let's just destroy the village. Jesus rebukes them and says that that's not how we we do this. They haven't come around, but there still may be an opportunity in the future when they do now he's gonna send out more than just the twelve. He sends out seventy or seventy two depending upon your um manuscript upon which your translation was. Um, conducted, but he sends them out to follow his work too. This, the mission of Jesus Christ has never been only about those who are called to vocational ministry. Jesus sends all of us out to continue his mission, to share the good news, the grace and love of Jesus Christ that comes to us through forgiveness. We get a really wonderful story of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we hear this and don't always hear it in the way that we could, but the Samaritan would have been the most hated, the most despised. They didn't like Samaritans. And so for Jesus to make the Samaritan the Hebrew of the story, especially over the religious establishment and the upright, over the priest and the, and the Levite, was pretty scandalous. He's making a pretty strong statement about It's not who you are. It's not your lineage. It's not your religious observance. It is who you truly choose to be and the things that you do that reveal whether or not the love of God resides in your heart. In the same way that standing in a garage won't make you a car, sitting in a pew at church won't make you a Christian. Only allowing the Holy Spirit to transform us with God's sanctifying grace do we become Christ-like And behave in ways that honor God. And in this case, the Samaritan, the one that the Jewish people thought was beyond help and redemption, is the one who does that more so than the religiously observant person. And here's the story of Martha and Mary that I um, alluded to earlier. And it says, right now, we're not, right now, Mary is listening. She's listening and learning. She's being a disciple. We're not going to take that away from her. It's not that feeding them, that hospitality wasn't important, but there are times when it's about being present with people. It's about listening. It's about encountering God more than it is about doing the things. I think there's a balance to it. In our churches, we need activities that reach people, that do things. We want to have meals and fellowships. We want to have Easter egg hunts. We want to have discipleship groups and multiple worship services. We want to do all these things. But then there are those moments where it needs to be about prayer. It needs to be about being willing to sit still. And sometimes the better choice is to do less with more connection to God rather than doing more At the sake, at the, um, at losing part of that connection to God. Jesus teaches his disciples about prayer and gives them the Lord's prayer that we, um, are so fond of and that is tender to our heart. And he tells them to persevere in prayer. Um, if you're concerned about it, you take it to God, talk about it with God, turn it over to God when you can. Um, but pray, believe, trust, Keep coming back and reassuring yourself, asking God to reassure you until you see that for which you are praying settled. Jesus actually gets accused of being pagan, like his power is coming from evil, from Beelzebul in particular. There, um, Beelzebul was a Canaanite Baal, B-A-A-L. He was the prince of demons. Um there was also a Philistine Baal named Zebub, Z E B U B, who was Lord of the Flies. Um so that's why we sometimes see um flies associated with Satan. Um so Beelzebub could be Valjebub. Um on there, and Jesus says, it, it, "That's ridiculous. <laughs> You're just reaching now. You want to? You don't want to admit that I have come from God to tell you anything. You'd rather contribute me to evil." He talks about um, the sign of Jonah. Um, Jonah was in the the belly of a whale for three days, um, and we often connect this with Jesus being in the grave for three days. But here's something else I want to suggest to you. What if the sign of Jonah is the miracle of one coming to preach and to witness in unlikeliness? Jonah was sent to preach the good news, to call foreign people who did not respect him to repentance and connection with God. What if that too is a sign of Jonah, that Jesus came to a people who didn't see him for who he was, didn't respect him, to preach good news and call people to come back and follow the right way of God. Um, and then for Jesus to, to, to refer to them like the people of Nineveh um, on there, that it will be better for them, that they will stand up and judge you in, in that day, that would have been a strong rebuke. That would have been stinging to the people who were listening. He then talks about what we allow into our lives, what we see, um, that if we fill our lives with light, if we fill it with the light of God and the love of God, then we will be light. If we are in darkness, we remain in spiritual darkness. Our spiritual perception and cultivating our ability to see things from a spiritual standpoint is important to us. Um, Light can be found nowhere else. True light can be found nowhere else other than in Jesus Christ. And then this chapter kind of closes with him issuing some strong denouncements of um, those who are not believing and who are opposing him. I feel like he has um, reached a point of frustration um, with them, and so he pronounces some woes on them. And this is how chapter 11 closes Um, We'll pick up with more warnings and exhortations in chapter 12 in our next podcast.